Chapter 4 Though He Were Dead Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? John 11:24-26, King James Version. Martha is a very accurate type of a class of anxious believers. They really do believe, but not with such confidence as to lay aside their worry. They don't distrust the Lord or question the truth of what He says, yet they wonder in their minds things like, How will this thing happen? And so they miss the major part of the present comfort that the word of the Lord would minister to their hearts if they received it more simply. How and why belong to the Lord. It is His business to arrange matters so as to fulfill His own promises. If we would sit at our Lord's feet with Mary and consider what He has promised, we would choose a better part than if we ran around with Martha, crying, How can these things be? In this case, when the Lord Jesus Christ told Martha that her brother would rise again, she replied, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. John 11:24. She was a type of certain anxious believers, for she set a practical limit to the Saviour's words. Of course there will be a resurrection, and then my brother will rise with the rest. She concluded that the Saviour could not mean anything more than that. The first and most common meaning that suggests itself to her must be what Jesus means. Isn't that the way with many of us? We had a statesman once who was a good man and who loved reform, but whenever he had achieved a little progress, he considered that the work was all done. We eventually called him Finality John, for he was always coming to the end of something. He took for his motto, rest and be thankful. Christians are often the same way in regard to the promises of God. We limit the Holy One of Israel as to the meaning of His words. We know that the words mean a certain thing, but we don't think that they can mean anything more. It would be good if the spirit of progress would enter into our faith so that we felt within our souls that we had never beheld the innermost glory of the Lord's words of grace. We are often amazed that the disciples put such poor meanings upon our Lord's words, but I fear we are almost as far off as they were from fully comprehending all His gracious teachings. Are we not still like little children, making little out of great words? Have we yet grasped even a tenth of our Lord's full meaning in many of His sayings of love? When He is talking about bright and sparkling gems of benediction, we think of common pebbles in the brook of mercy. When he speaks of stars and heavenly crowns, we think of sparks and children's garlands made of fading flowers. Oh, that we could have our intellect cleared! Better still, it would be good if we could have our understanding expanded. Best of all, it would be good to have our faith increased so as to reach to the height of our Lord's great arguments of love. Martha also had another fault, in which she was very like us. 
She set the words of Jesus on the shelf as things so ordinary and common that they were of little practical importance. Scripture Your brother will rise again. John 11.23 If Martha had possessed enough faith, she might truthfully have said, Lord, I thank you for that word. I expect within a short space to see him sitting at the table with you. I put the best meaning possible upon your words, for I know that you are always better than I can imagine you to be. Therefore, I expect to see my beloved Lazarus walk home from the sepulchre before the sun sets again. But no, she laid the truth aside as a matter past all dispute, saying, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. A great many precious truths are laid aside by us like old vehicles in the junkyard, never to see service any more, or like aged pensioners cast aside as relics of the past. We say, Yes, that's quite true. We fully believe that doctrine. Somehow it's almost as bad to cover up a doctrine in lavender as it is to throw it out the window. When you so believe a truth as to put it to bed and cover it with the blanket of neglect, it is much the same as if you didn't believe it at all. An official belief is very much related to unbelief. Some people never question a doctrine. They are not even tempted to do so. They accept the gospel as true, but then they never expect to see its promises practically carried out. They see it as a proper thing to believe, but by no means do they see it as a prominent, practical factor in actual life. It is true, but it is mysterious, cloudy, mythical, and far removed from the realm of practical common sense. We often do the same with the promises as a poor old couple did with a precious document that might have cheered their old age if they had used it according to its real value. A gentleman entered a poor woman's house and saw framed upon the wall a French note for a thousand francs. He said to the old folks, How did you get this? They informed him that a poor French soldier had been taken in by them and nursed until he died, and he had given them that little picture when he was dying as a memorial of him. They thought it was such a pretty souvenir that they had framed it and there it was adorning the cottage wall. They were greatly surprised when they were told that it was worth a sum that would be quite a little fortune for them, if they would simply turn it into money. Are we not equally impractical with far more precious things? Have you not taken certain words of your great Lord and framed them in your hearts? You say to yourselves, They are so sweet and precious and yet you have never turned them into an actual blessing. You have never used them in the hour of need. You have done as Martha did when she took the words, Your brother will rise again, and put them in a nice frame that said, In the resurrection on the last day. Oh, that we had grace to turn God's bullion of gospel into coins and use them as our present spending money! Moreover, Martha made another mistake and that was setting the promise in the far-off distance. Distancing the promises of the Most High is a common problem. In the resurrection on the last day. No doubt Martha thought it was a very long way off, 
and therefore she didn't get much comfort out of it. Telescopes are meant to bring objects near to the eye, but I have known people to use mental telescopes the wrong way. They always put the big end of it to their eye, and then the mirror makes the object seem farther away. Martha's brother was to be raised that very day. She could have understood the Saviour that way, but instead she looked at his words through the wrong end of the telescope and said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Brethren, do not refuse the present blessing. Death and heaven, or the second coming and the glory, are at your doors. Scripture In a very little while, he who is coming will come, and will not delay. Hebrews 10.37 The Lord is not slow about his promise. 2 Peter 3.9 Don't say in your heart that your Lord delays his coming. Matthew 24.48 Don't think that his words of love are only for the distant future. In the ages to come, marvels will be revealed. But even the present hour is adorned with loving kindness. Today the Lord has rest, peace, and joy to give to you. Don't lose these treasures by unbelief. Martha also seems to me to have made the promise unreal and impersonal. Your brother will rise again. To have realized that would have been a great comfort to her, but she mixed Lazarus up with all the rest of the dead. Yes, he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. When thousands of millions will be rising from their graves, no doubt Lazarus will rise with the rest. We are the same way. We take the promise and say, This is true for all the children of God. If so, it is true for us, but we miss that point. What a blessing God has bestowed upon the covenanted people! Yes, you are one of them, but you shake your head as if the word was not for you. It is a fine feast, and yet you are hungry. It is a full and flowing stream, but you remain thirsty. Why is this? Somehow your general understanding misses the sweetness that comes from personal application. There is such a thing as speaking of the promises in a magnificent style, and yet being in deep spiritual poverty. It's as if a man should boast of the wealth of his nation and the vast amount of treasure in the bank, while he does not own even a penny of it himself. In your case, you know it's your own fault that you are poor and miserable, for if you would only exercise the proper faith, you could possess an unlimited inheritance. If you are a child of God, all things are yours and you can help yourself. If you are hungry at this banquet, It is because of lack of faith. If you are thirsty by the bank of this river, it is because you do not bend down and drink. Behold, God is your portion. Lamentations 3 24. The Father is your shepherd, the Son of God is your food, and the Spirit of God is your comforter. Rejoice and be glad, and with the firm hand of a personal faith, grasp that royal blessing that Jesus sets before you. In his promises. I urge you to observe how the Lord Jesus Christ in great wisdom dealt with Martha. In the first place, he did not grow angry with her. 
there is not a trace of irritation in his speech. He didn't say to her, Martha, I am ashamed of you, that you would have such low thoughts of me. She thought that she was honoring Jesus when she said, Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. John 11:22. Her idea of Jesus was that he was a great prophet who would ask God and obtain answers to his prayers. She had not grasped the truth of his own personal power to give and sustain life. But the Savior did not say, Martha, these are low and poor ideas of your Lord and Savior. He didn't rebuke her, even though she lacked wisdom that she should have possessed. I don't think God's people learn much by being scolded. It's not the habit of the great Lord to scold His disciples, and therefore they don't take it well when His servants take it upon themselves to rebuke them. If ever you meet with one of the Lord's own followers who falls far short of the true ideal of the gospel, don't rant and scold. Who taught you what you know? He who has taught you did it out of His infinite love and grace and compassion. He was very tender with you, for you were ignorant enough. Therefore, be tender and patient with others, just as your Lord was gentle toward you. It's not proper for a servant to lose patience where his master shows so much. With a gentle spirit, the Lord Jesus proceeded to teach Martha more of the things concerning himself. More of Jesus, more of Jesus. That is the sovereign cure for our faults. He revealed himself to her so that in him she could see reasons for a clearer hope and a more substantial faith. How sweetly those words fell upon her ear, I am the resurrection and the life. John 11:25. He did not say, I can get resurrection by my prayers, but I myself am the resurrection. God's people need to know more of what Jesus is, more of the fullness that it has pleased the Father to place in him. Some of them know well enough what they are themselves and they will break their hearts if they go on reading much longer only from that depressing book. They need to rest their eyes upon the person of their Lord. They need to learn about all the riches of grace that lie hidden in Him. Then they will gain courage and will look forward with more certain expectation. When our Lord said, I am the resurrection and the life, He indicated to Martha that resurrection and life were not gifts that He had to seek nor even blessings that he had to create, but that he himself was the resurrection and the life. These things were wherever he was. He was the author, giver, and maintainer of life, and that life was himself. He wanted Martha to know that he himself was precisely what she needed for her brother. She did know a little of the Lord's power, for she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, John 11:21, which could mean, Lord, you are the life. Yes, Jesus said, but you must also learn that I am the resurrection. You already admit that if I had been here, Lazarus would not have died, but I also want you to learn that with me here, your brother will live even though he has died, John 11:25. I want you to know that when I am with my people, none of them will die forever. 
for I am to them the resurrection and the life. Poor Martha was looking up into the sky for life, or gazing down into the deeps for resurrection, when the resurrection and the life stood before her, smiling upon her and comforting her heavy heart. She had thought of what Jesus might have done if He had been there before, but she needed to know what He is at the present moment. I have introduced the text to you, and I pray God the Holy Spirit to bless these introductory observations. If we learn only these first lessons, we will not have read in vain. Let us understand promises in their largest sense. Let us regard them as real, and let us set them down as facts. Let us look to the Promiser, even to Jesus the Lord, and not look as much to the difficulties that surround the accomplishment of the promise. In beginning the divine life, let us look to Jesus, and later, in running the heavenly race, let us still be looking unto Jesus, until we see in Him our all in all. When both eyes look upon Jesus, we are in the light. But when we have one eye on Him and one eye on self, all is darkness. Oh, to see Him with all our soul's eyes! Now I am going to speak as I am helped by the Spirit, and I will proceed by first asking you to view the text as a stream of comfort to Martha and other bereaved people, and then to view it as a great source of comfort to all believers. First, I want you to view the text as a stream of comfort to Martha and other bereaved people. Observe in the beginning that the presence of Jesus Christ means life and resurrection. It meant that to Lazarus. If Jesus comes to Lazarus, Lazarus must live. If Martha had taken the Savior's words literally, as she should have done, she would have had immediate comfort from them, and the Savior intended her to understand them in that sense. He basically says, I am the power that can make Lazarus live again. I am the power that can keep him in life. Yes, I am the resurrection and the life. A statement understood this way would have been very comfortable to Martha. Nothing could have been more comforting. It would then and there have abolished death as far as her brother was concerned. Somebody says, But I don't see how this is any comfort to us. For if Jesus is here, it's only a spiritual presence, and we can't expect to see our dear mother or child or husband raised from the dead by that. I answer that our Lord Jesus is able at this moment to give us back our departed ones, for He is still the resurrection and the life. But let me ask you whether you really would want Jesus to raise your departed ones from the dead. At first you say, Of course I do. But I would ask you to reconsider that decision. I believe that upon further consideration you will say, No, I could not want that. Do you really want to see your glorified husband sent back again to this world of care and pain? Would you want your father or mother deprived of the glories that they are now enjoying in order that they might help you in the struggles of this mortal life? Would you take the crown away from the saints? You are not that cruel. Would you really want that dear child back from among the angels and from the inner glory to come here and suffer again? 
you would not want it so. To my mind, it is, or should be, a comfort to you that it's not within your power to have your departed loved one back because you might be tempted in some selfish moment to accept the doubtful blessing. Lazarus could return and fit into his place again, but scarcely one in ten thousand could do so. There would be serious drawbacks in the return of those whom we have loved best. Do you cry, Give me back my father, give me back my friend? You don't know what you ask. It might be a cause of regret to you as long as they remained here, for you would think to yourself every day, Beloved one, I have brought you out of heaven by my wish. I have robbed you of infinite joy in order to gratify myself. As for me, I would rather have the Lord Jesus keep the keys of death than that he should lend them to me. It would be too dreadful a privilege to be empowered to rob heaven of the perfected merely to give pleasure to imperfect ones below. Jesus would raise them now if he knew it was right. I don't want to take the government from his shoulder. Isaiah 9 6. It is more comfortable to me to think that Jesus Christ could give them back to me, and he would do so, if it were for his glory and my good. My dear ones who lie asleep could be awakened in an instant if the Master thought it best, but it would not be best, and therefore even I would say, Tread softly, Master. Do not awake them. I will go to them, but they will not return to me. 2 Samuel 12 23. It is not my wish for them to return. It is better that they should be with you where you are and behold your glory. It doesn't seem to me, then, dear friend, that you are one bit behind Martha. You should be comforted while Jesus says to you, I am even now the resurrection and the life. Here is more comfort that we can each safely take. When Jesus comes, the dead will live. Scripture, He who believes in me will live even if he dies. John 11.25 We don't know when our Lord will descend from heaven, but we do know the message of the angel. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Acts 1.11. The Lord will come. We may not question the certainty of His appearing. When He comes, all His redeemed will live with Him. The trump of the archangel will startle the happy sleepers, and they will wake to put on their beautiful garments. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. The body will be transformed and will be made like unto Christ's glorious body. Philippians 3.21. And will be once more wrapped around them as the garment of their perfected and emancipated spirits. Then our brother will rise again, and the Lord will bring with him all our dear ones who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This is the glorious hope of the church, wherein we see the death of death and the destruction of the grave. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4 18. We are also told that when Jesus comes, living believers will not die. After the coming of Christ, there will be no more death for his people. What does Paul say? Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
we will not all die, but we will all be changed. 1 Corinthians 15:51. Did I see a little schoolgirl raise her hand? Did I hear her say, Please, sir, you made a mistake? So I did. I made it on purpose. Paul did not say, We will not all die, for the Lord had already said, Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. John 11:26. Paul would not say that any of us would die, but he used his master's own term and said, We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. When the Lord comes, there will be no more death. Those who are alive and remain, 1 Thessalonians 4:17, will undergo a sudden transformation, for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And by that transformation, our bodies will be made ready to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 1:12. There will be no more death then. Therefore, we have two sacred handkerchiefs with which to wipe the eyes of mourners. One, when Christ comes, the dead will live, and two, when Christ comes, those who live will never die. Like Enoch or Elijah, we will pass into the glorious condition without wading through the black stream, while those who have already forded it will prove to have not lost anything by having done so. All this is in connection with Jesus. Resurrection with Jesus is resurrection indeed. Life in Jesus is life indeed. When we see resurrection, glory, eternal life, and ultimate perfection coming to us in Jesus, they are all endeared to us. Jesus is the golden pot that has this manna, the rod that bears these almonds, and the life whereby we live. But I have not made you drink deeply enough from this stream yet. I think our Saviour meant that even now his dead are alive. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Those who believe in Jesus Christ appear to die, but yet they live. They are not in the grave, but they are forever with the Lord. They are not unconscious, but they are with their Lord in paradise. Death cannot kill a believer. It can only usher him into a freer form of life. Because Jesus lives, his people live. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Mark 12:27. Those who have departed have not perished. We laid the precious body in the cemetery and we set up a headstone, but we could engrave on them the Lord's words she has not died but is asleep luke 8:52 it's true that an unbelieving generation might laugh us to scorn but we scorn their laughing even now his living do not die there is an essential difference between the death of the godly and the death of the ungodly death comes to the ungodly person as a matter of punishment and judgment but to the righteous as a call to his father's palace. To the sinner, it is an execution. To the saint, it is a revelation. Death to the wicked is the king of terrors. Death to the saint is the end of terrors and the beginning of glory. To die in the Lord is a covenant blessing. Revelation 14, 
13. Death is ours. It is written down in the list of our possessions among the all things, 2 Corinthians 6.10, and it follows life in the list as if it were an equal blessing. It no longer means death for us to die. The name remains, but the thing itself is changed. Why then are we in bondage through fear of death? Why do we dread the process that gives us liberty? I am told that people who in the cruel ages had lain in prison for years suffered much more in the moment when their chains were knocked off than they had endured for months in wearing the hard iron. Yet I suppose that no one languishing in a dungeon would have been unwilling to stretch out his arm or leg so that the heavy chains could be beaten off by the blacksmith. We should all be content to endure that little inconvenience in order to obtain lasting liberty. Knocking off the fetters is like death, yet the iron may never seem to be so truly iron as when that last liberating blow of grace is about to fall. Let us not mind the harsh grating of the key as it turns in the lock. If we understand it properly, it will be as music to our ears. Imagine that your last hour is come. The key turns with pain for a moment, but then the lock is opened. The iron gate opens. The spirit is free. Glory be unto the Lord for ever and ever. Now I want you to look at the text and see it as a great source of comfort for all believers. I cannot understand it any more than I could measure the bottomless pit, but I can invite you to survey it with the help of the Holy Spirit. First, this text plainly teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ is the life of His people. We are dead by nature, and you can never produce life out of death, for the essential elements are lacking. If a spark is lingering among the ashes, you might still be able to fan it into a flame. But the last spark of heavenly life is gone from human nature, and it is vain to seek for life among the dead. The life of every Christian is Christ. He is the beginning of life, being the resurrection. When He comes to us, we live. Regeneration is the result of contact with Christ. We are born again unto a living hope by His resurrection from the dead. The life of the Christian in its beginning is in Christ alone. Not a fragment of it is from ourselves, and the continuance of that life is just the same. Jesus is not only the resurrection to begin with, but He is the life to continue with. Some people might think that they have life in themselves, but we have no spiritual life other than life as it is in Christ. Every breath that your spiritual life draws is in Christ. If you are regarded for a moment as separated from Christ, you are cast forth as a branch and are withered. A part of the body severed from the head is dead flesh and is no more. Your life is in union to Christ. Oh, that our hearers would understand this! I see a poor sinner look into himself and look again and then cry, I cannot see any life within. Of course you cannot. You don't have any life of your own. A Christian cries out, I cannot find anything within to feed my soul. Do you expect to feed upon yourself? Must not Israel look up 
for the manna? Did any of the tribes of Israel find the manna in their own tents? To look to self is to turn to a broken cistern that cannot hold any water. Jeremiah 2, 13. You must learn that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Listen to that great I, that infinite I. This must cover over and swallow up your little I, your little ego. Scripture, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20. What are you? We are less than nothing and vanity, but over it all springs up that divine, all-sufficient personality. Scripture, I am the resurrection and the life. Take the first two words together, and they seem to me to have a wondrous majesty about them. I am. This is self-existence. There is life in Himself. Even as the Mediator, the Lord Jesus tells us that it is given to Him to have life in Himself, even as the Father has life in Himself. John 5.26 I am fills the yawning mouth of the sepulchre. He who lives and was dead and is alive forevermore, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Revelation 1, 18, 22, 13 declares, I am the resurrection and the life. If then I want to live unto God, I must have Christ. If I desire to continue to live unto God, I must continue to have Christ. If I aspire to have that life developed to the utmost fullness of which it is capable, I must find it all in Christ. He has come not only that we might have life, but that we might have it more abundantly. John 10.10 Anything that is beyond the circle of Christ is death. If I dream up an experience over which I foolishly gloat, and it fills me with such pride that I don't see my need to come to Christ now as a poor, empty-handed sinner, I have entered into the realm of death, and have introduced into my soul a damning leaven. Away with it! Away with it! Everything of life is put into this golden casket of Christ Jesus. Everything else is death. We don't have a breath of life anywhere but in Jesus. Who lives always to give life. He said, Because I live, you will live also. John 14, 19. And this is true. We don't live for any other reason. It's not because of anything in us or connected with us, but only because of Jesus. Scripture, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 3. Even further in this great source to which we would guide you, faith is the only means by which we can draw our life from Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me. That's it. Jesus didn't say, he who loves me, even though love is the greatest commandment, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, and is very sweet to God. He doesn't say, he who serves me even though everyone who believes in Christ will labor to serve Him. He doesn't even say, He who imitates me, even though everyone who believes in Christ must and will imitate Him. 
Rather, Jesus said, He who believes in me. Why is that? Why does the Lord so continually make faith to be the only link between himself and the soul? As I understand it, it is because faith is a grace that claims nothing to itself and has no operation apart from Jesus, to whom it unites us. If you want to conduct electricity, you must find a metal that will not create any action of its own. If it did so, it would disturb the current that you want to send along it. If it set up an action of its own, how would you know the difference between what came from the metal and what came from the battery? Faith is an empty-handed receiver and communicator. It is nothing apart from that upon which it relies, and therefore it is suitable to be a conductor for grace. When an auditorium has to be built so that a speaker can be plainly heard, the essential thing is to get rid of all echo. When you have no echo, then you have a perfect building. Faith makes no noise of its own. It allows the Word to speak. Faith cries, Not to us, not to us. Psalm 115, 1. Christ puts His crown on faith's head, exclaiming, Your faith has saved you. Luke 7, 50. But faith hastens to ascribe all the glory of salvation to Jesus only. The Lord selects faith rather than any other grace because it is a self forgetting thing. It is best adapted to be the conduit through which the water of life runs because it will not impart a flavor of its own, but will just convey the stream purely and simply from Christ to the soul. He who believes in me. Notice that there is no limit to the reception of Christ by faith. Scripture He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever, John 11.25-26, King James Version. I am deeply in love with that word, whosoever. It is a splendid word. A person who kept many animals had some large dogs and some little ones, and in his eagerness to let them enter his house freely, he had two holes cut in the door, one for the large dogs and another for the little dogs. You may well laugh, for the little dogs could surely have come in wherever there was room for the larger ones. This whosoever is the large opening, suitable for sinners of every size. Scripture Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. John 11:26, King James Version. Does anyone have a right to believe in Christ? The gospel gives every person the right to believe in Christ, for we are commanded to preach it to everyone with this command, listen that you may live. Isaiah 55:3. Everyone has a right to believe in Christ, because he will be damned if he doesn't, and he must have a right to do that which will bring him into condemnation if he does not do it. It is written, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 16, King James Version. That makes it clear that I, whoever I may be, since I have a right to try to escape from damnation, have a right to avail myself of the blessed command, 
believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Acts 16.31. Oh, that whosoever! That hole in the door for the large dog! Do not forget it. Come and put your trust in Christ. If you can only get united with Christ, you are a living person. If only your finger touches the hem of his garment, you are made whole. Luke 8, 43-44. You only need the touch of faith, and the virtue flows from him to you. And he is to you the resurrection and the life. I want you to notice that there is no limit to this power. I have had to deal with many despairing sinners who would pull me down if I did not lift them up. I try to speak very good words for Christ when I meet with these dejected ones. I hear one say, How far can Christ be life to a sinner? I feel myself to be utterly wrong. I am completely wrong. There's nothing right about me. Although I have eyes, I can't see. Although I have ears, I don't hear. If I have a hand, I can't use it. If I have a foot, I can't run with it. I seem completely wrong. Yes, but if you believe in Christ, even if you are still more wrong, that is to say, even though you were dead, which is the worst state in which a person's body can be, even though you were dead, yet you will live. You look at the spiritual thermometer and you ask, How low will the grace of God go? Will it descend to summer heat? Will it touch the freezing point? Will it go to zero? Yes, it will go below the lowest conceivable point, lower than any instrument can indicate. It will go below the zero of spiritual death. Even if you are not only wrong, but dead in your heart, if you believe in Jesus, you will yet live. Someone else says, I feel so weak. I can't understand. I can't comprehend these things. I can't pray. I can't do anything. All I can do is to feebly trust in Jesus. All right. Even if you had gone further than that, and were so weak as to be dead, you would yet live. Even if the weakness had turned to a dire paralysis that left you completely without strength, yet it is written, He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Oh, sir, someone says, I am so unfeeling. These people are generally the most feeling people in the world. I am sorry every day because I can't be sorry for my sin. That is the way they talk. It is very absurd, but it is still very real to them. Oh, one says, the earth shook, the sun was darkened, the rocks rent, and the very dead came out of their graves at the death of Christ, yet I remain unmoved. Of feeling all things show some sign, but this unfeeling heart of mine. Yet if you believe, as unfeeling as you are, you live. For if you were gone further than numbness to deadness, yet if you believe in Him, you will live. Another person sighs. Ah, sir, it's not just that I have no feeling, but I am become objectionable and obnoxious to everybody. I am a weariness to myself and to others. I'm sure that when I tell you my troubles, you would wish that I were at Jericho or somewhere else far away. 
I admit that such a thought has occurred to me sometimes when I have been very busy and some poor soul has grown tedious with rehearsing his seven times repeated miseries. But if you were to get more dull still, if you were to become so bad that people would rather see a corpse than to see you, yet remember that Jesus says, He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Yes, if you went so far as to go in and out among people like a nervous ghost so that everybody got out of your way, it would not put you beyond the promise, He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Oh, sir, I have no hope. My case is quite hopeless. Okay, but even if you had got beyond that, so that you were dead and didn't even know you had no hope, yet if you believed in him, you would live. Oh, but I've tried everything, and there's nothing more for me to try. I've read books, I've spoken to Christians, and I'm no better off. No doubt it is quite so. But even if you had passed beyond that stage so that you could not try anything more, yet if you did believe in Jesus, you would live. Oh, the blessed power of faith, or rather, the matchless power of Him who is the resurrection and the life. For even if the poor believer were dead, yet shall he live. Glory be to the Lord who works so wonderfully. To conclude, once you believe in Christ and receive new life, there is this sweet reflection for you. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Here is a very literal translation. Everyone who lives and believes on me in no wise shall die forever. This is from the Englishman's Greek New Testament, and this could not be said any better. The believer may pass through the natural change called death, as far as his body is concerned, but his soul cannot die. Jesus says that he gives his sheep eternal life. Scripture, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 10:28. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. John 3:36. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John 4:14. 4, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Mark 16:16. 16, 16. Someone else says, "You don't know what I am." No, and I don't want to know what you are. But if you are so far gone that there seems to be not even a ghost of a shade of a shadow of a hope anywhere about you, yet if you now believe in Jesus, you will live. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is worthy to be trusted. Throw yourself upon him, and he will carry you in his arms. Cast your whole weight upon his atonement, it will bear the strain. Hang on him as the picture hangs on the nail, and seek no other support. Just as you are now, depend upon Christ with all your might, and as the Lord lives, you will live. As Christ reigns in you, you will reign over sin. As Christ comes to glory, you will partake of that glory for ever and ever. Amen.